Psalm 68. This is a very long psalm. It's very... In some ways it's complicated, and I'll kind of go over why, but... Um, can you turn me down just a little bit there, Asher? So let me read through it very quickly, okay? As quickly as I can. So Psalm 68, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away. So drive them away as wax melts before the fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O oh God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O oh God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in, his, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went before the players of instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations. The Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the people who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, you who to him who rides on the heaven, heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. 
and his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. So there's Psalm 68. Like I said, a bit of a long psalm. We're going to try to go through the whole thing. Um, some, a lot of it we're just going to read, though. And I'll make very brief comments on. Um, but let me pray, and then we'll look at it. So, Father, we desperately need your help. Lord, we don't just need to be challenged by your word. We need to be changed by your presence. Lord, please do both. Lord, we can be challenged, but we don't have the power to change. But you can give us that power, Lord. So please help us. And I pray that, Lord, we would listen to these words, that they would fill us with praise to you, knowing who you are and what you do and how awesome you are and how awesome are all your victories, Lord. You overwhelmingly conquer, and we overwhelmingly conquer in you. And Lord, I pray that even the demons would tremble at this word today. Lord, we know that they're here. We're not ignorant of their devices, of what they do. Lord, I pray that you'd shut them up. In your name, amen. So Psalm 68, Adam Clark, who was a commentator a long, long time ago, he wrote, he wrote this. This is from his commentary on Psalm 68. He says, I know not how to undertake a comment on this psalm. It is the most difficult of the whole Psalter. In this psalm, there are as many precipices and labyrinths as there are verses or words. It may not be improperly termed or titled the torture of critics and the reproach of commentators. To attempt anything new on it would be dangerous, and to say what has been so often said would be unsatisfactory. I am truly afraid to fall over one of the, those precipices or to be endlessly entangled and lost in one of these labyrinths. There are customs here referred to which I do not fully understand. There are words whose meanings I cannot to my own satisfaction ascertain and allusions which are to me inexplicable. Yet of the composition itself, I have the highest opinion. It is sublime beyond all comparison. It is constructed with with an art truly admirable. It possesses all the dignity of the sacred language, but none but David could have composed it. And at this lapse of time, it would require no small influence of the spirit that was upon him to give its true interpretation. So, very humble look there at Psalm 68 for, for this guy. And I think as we go through it, you guys will kind of see. Um, it is difficult. I don't think it's completely inexplicable or anything like that. Um, but there are things that are in here that's just kind of, hmm, I'm not sure what to do with that. So, but we're going to do our best. And uh, what's that? He didn't have Google, yeah. You know, I don't know what they did back then. What they actually studied. But um, now he's a brilliant guy. He's read the Bible from a different language every day. Not the whole Bible, but the passage that he was working on. You know, he'd read it in French and German and Greek and Hebrew and, you know, all these things. So pretty brilliant guy, Adam Clark. But it starts off to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. And verse 1 says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. So in Hebrew, this isn't actually, this comes off as a prayer in our New King James Bible. 
in the Hebrew or even the Christian Standard Bible or the Holman Christian Standard Bible actually did the best job in this verse. They say, God arises, his enemies scatter, and those who hate him flee from his presence. So it's not a prayer, it's an affirmation. It's like, this is what God does. God arises, and here's what happens. His enemies are scattered, and let those also who hate him flee before him. This is also a quote from Numbers 10.35. So when they would pick up the ark to travel through the wilderness, here's what they would say. So it says in Numbers 10.35, So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So David takes that verse out of Numbers and makes this composition of this psalm out of it. But listen, I believe the, the, the sense of the entire psalm is just the victory of Yahweh. God's victory over nations, over false gods, over, over death and hell and sin itself. And this is a messianic psalm. If you guys noticed in um, verse 18, you have, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men. Does that sound familiar from anywhere else in the Bible? Book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Paul uses it, and we'll get there. So when a uh, verse from the Psalms is quoted in the New Testament, that designates it as a messianic psalm when it's referred to, or when it refers to Jesus. And the New Testament writers make that clear that this is a this is a passage about the Lord. So it's designated as a messianic psalm. But I love it because what's what's the first thing he said? God arises. And when God arises, victory is sure. Right? Things can be in a horrible mess. Armies can be the armies of Israel are getting beat. But then when God arises, what happens? Victory is sure. And that's the same for us. We could be going through it. We could feel beat. We could feel downtrodden. We could feel depressed and overwhelmed. But when God arises, victory is sure. Amen? Verse 2, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. So look at the pictures that are given there. You have smoke. It's driven away. You know, smoke has no weight, no real substance to it. You know, you light a match and you have that smoke that's there for a minute, that real dark smoke, and just go, just to barely give it a breath and it's dissipated in the atmosphere. That's what he's saying the wicked is like. When God arises, it's like he just breathes on them and they're gone. Like his wind blows on them and it's driven away. And notice wax. How many times have you melted it, or uh, melted a candle? That's what happens when you light a candle. It starts to melt. You, start, you light it, and it starts to puddle around in there. And, um, hey, Eric, would you close that door for me, please? You, you light a candle, and it start, the wax begins to puddle and begins to drip down the sides. It has no ability to stay in a hardened form, and neither will the wicked. They will perish at the presence of God. You know, it's like the wicked boast such great things. But imagine that day when God arises and he calls them to account. Or they see how awesome he is, how holy he is, how powerful he is. And what happens to them? They fall down. Remember the Roman soldiers at the tomb of Jesus? 
It wasn't even the Lord that showed up. It was an angel. And it says they all shook and became as dead men, passed out. This great, these great soldiers of the ancient world who no army could come against. At least not for a while. But they're prideful. They exalt themselves before God, but they have no ability to stand when he arises. Listen to Psalm 1, uh, verses 4 through 6. It says, The ungodly are not so, so it's a comparison of the righteous and the wicked. He says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the godly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So I'd say, remember what God is, who God is, and remember what man is. And then fear. Fear, what is God? He's infinite, he's holy, he's eternal, right? What, are, what is man? We're corrupt, we're limited, we're finite. You know, infinite means, when you're speaking of the Lord, it means limitless. He has no bounds, nothing can contain him, nothing can stop him. He's completely limitless. But man's finite, limited, and our lives are short-lived. You know, compared to him, we're like the opposite. And also I would say, according to this, when the wicked do rise up, we don't have to fear. Because there is a day of judgment coming. We know who wins. We know who wins. Have you read the whole Bible? Have you read the book of Revelation? You know, maybe you've just like read the beginning and said, I'm going to skip all the way to the end. You read the end. You're like, oh, God wins. Okay, awesome. You know, he wins. You know, but imagine that day when they stand, when they realize what's happened. Go to Psalm 2 real quick. Psalm chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, I'm just going to read through the whole psalm. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So that's their response. They want to cast God's cords from us. They don't want to have anything to do. Like, let's get rid of your law. Let's get rid of all your, your absolutes. But what's God's response? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. I mean, right there we see when the wicked try to stand before God or even stand up to him, they're going to be dashed to pieces like a pot, like a clay pot, like a clay jar. They have no substance. They have no ability to stand against him. So we don't have to fear. 
And when you understand this, you'll be like verses 3 and 4. Go ahead and look at them. Psalm 68. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah and rejoice before him. Riding on the clouds may give a picture that Yahweh is greater than Baal or Baal. Right? Baal was this disgusting Canaanite god. They would sacrifice their children to him, do all kinds of horrible things to worship him. And he was pictured as riding on the clouds. And so when you see this picture of Yahweh riding on the clouds, it's like, forget about Baal. He is nothing compared to Yahweh. He is nothing compared to the God of the Bible. He is the one who really rides on the clouds and has all authority and dominion and power. Also, it says, might be confused by his name, Yah-Y-A-H. You know, it's like if you were to say hallelujah, that's basically what you're saying. It's a shortened form of Yahweh. It's just Yah, like hallelujah. Hallel is Hebrew for praise, and Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. So praise Yahweh but by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. And here's his victory over the oppressed. Look at verse 5. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. I just have to say, look at the heart of God there. Look at God's heart. A father of the fatherless. Those who have no fa- I mean, what's, what's more important to a child than a father and a mother? To, to have those things is instrumental in the life of any person. You know, we have so much counseling going on right now and just all over the place. And what does it come down to a lot of times? Well, I didn't have a father who was there for me. Boys who don't have a father in their lives or a strong male leader in their lives. What happens many times? Many times they become delinquents drug abusers, fornicators. They have have nobody to take them under the wing and and show them what a man is like. They're vulnerable. And widows, God is a defender of widows. Literally, it says judge of widows. You know, more like in the sense of vindicating them. And it says, is God in his holy habitation. Remember, back in the ancient days too, how harsh it was for widows and orphans. How harsh it was to not have somebody looking out for you. Somebody who would work and provide and do these things for you and stand up for you. When women didn't, you know, their witness was nothing. You know, what would the Jews pray? Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. If they lost their husband or even an oldest son, they're so vulnerable. And and God says, I am a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. Just more on the heart of God in this. Did you know that every third year, all the tithes were supposed to go to the Levites, to the fatherless, to widows in Israel? 
It says in Deuteronomy 26, 12 through 13, when you have finished laying all, laying aside all the tithes of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that you may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Nor have I forgotten them. God commands his people to remember the orphans, to remember the fatherless, to remember the widows, to remember those who are oppressed. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So I have to ask you and I have to ask myself, where is our heart for people like that? For the fatherless? For the widows? For those who their parents have abandoned them and they're on drugs or whatever it is? and they have nobody to look after them. For the widow who can't survive on her own, and everything's just so hard, and doesn't have enough money to, to stay somewhere. My wife and I went to, it was an info night a few, about a month ago. It was called Project 127, coming from James 127. It was on adoption and foster parenting and stuff like that. We just wanted to go, and maybe it's something we can do in the future. Um, you know, it's not something that anybody should feel pressured to do, to be a foster parent or to adopt, because that's a big responsibility. You know, these kids, they had one couple stand up and talk about all the kids that would come through. Some of them are teenage. They would have, you know, different kids all week coming through their house because they're constantly getting calls. Hey, can you take this kid? Can you take this kid? Can you take this kid? Because the need is so great, and so many of them came from Jefferson County here in the city of Golden. The need was so great. And they had teenagers, they had toddlers, they had infants, you know, just all the time coming through their house. Some of them would stay just a day or a week or a month, some of them years. And they got to pour into them and love on them and show them what a family was like. And they told their kids, and they didn't start doing this until their kids were out of the house, and then their kids had started to adopt and to foster parent and stuff. And then the parents had done it before, but they always told their kids, we want to eventually be a family to those who don't have a family. And I thought that was powerful. Be a family to those that don't have a family. You know? I would just ask, where are our hearts concerning this? God says, I am a father to the fatherless. This is what I care about. And if we have the heart of God, shouldn't we care about what he cares about? And I'm not saying we should all go out and adopt or be foster parents, but do we pray for them? Do we pray for organizations like that? My wife and I are going to start giving to this organization just on our own. If you, if you would like information on it, I'd be more than happy to give it to you and text you the information and how you can find out more about it. But they're a Christian organization that um, trains people to be foster parents and to adopt children and helps them through the process. 
you know, much of this has to come through social workers in the city and stuff like that. And to have a Christian organization that stands in the gap and shows you and teaches you and helps you along through this is awesome. You know, so there's so many ways to, to be a part of this. And I think, you know, I would definitely say we in America are probably overloaded with information. And, you know, it's like we need to have compassion everywhere. And we just don't have it in ourselves. And so we become so exhausted. And it's just kind of like, well, I hope somebody takes care of them. You know? But what if we said, let's just take care of one thing, one thing that the Lord's put on our hearts. And we just focused on that, whatever it is. And we did that one thing well. You know, whether it's foster parenting or this type of thing or something else or missions or whatever it is or taking care of the poor and the hungry, whatever. Something. You know, maybe, maybe we can just donate to something. Help them. Help them do the work that God's called them to do. Pray for them. But I can't think of a better way to show the heart of God than caring for those who can't care for themselves. For orphans. Weren't we or- orphans? Weren't we lost? Weren't we like sheep without a shepherd? And God had compassion on us? He, I mean, just think about it. God reached down, revealed himself to you, and pulled you up and made you a part of his family, of his kingdom. He adopted you and has made you sons and daughters of the Most High God. Think of Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Another way I could think about this is there's a whole lot of lost people out there. A whole lot of lost people. Orphans in the world. Without God as their father. And to disciple them, to to share the love of Christ with them. We all have them at our work, places of work. We have them as neighbors out and share the gospel with the lost, with the orphans, with those who don't have a father, those who have been adopted by the world, and it's a cruel father, and Satan's a cruel master, and they've been beat and destroyed, and we can come along with the love of Christ and show them that that's not all there is. So a fatherless, father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Look at that. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. What did he say back in Deuteronomy? He said, do this so that you can have food on your tables so that you will be provided for. You don't provide for them. I'm not going to provide for you is basically what God's saying. You forsake the fatherless. You forsake the poor. You forsake the widows. And I'm going to forsake you. You'll dwell in a dry land because you're rebellious. 
Verse 7. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness to the poor, for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. So notice that comes right after him talking about being a father of the fatherless. Taking Israel out of a nation, becoming its father, begetting them. It's like he gave birth to them when they crossed the Red Sea. He let them grow up in Israel, become a nation, two million people. And then he brought them out of there. I can only imagine how many widows, solitary people, orphans, there were in Israel at that time with Pharaoh as their master. With Pharaoh as their master, beating them, whipping them, probably dying from all the work that they were doing. Widows and fatherless, and God brought them out. And when he passed through the wilderness, the earth shaked. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. And then verse 9 says, You, O God, sent a plentiful rain. Sent there is literally, you shook out a plentiful rain. It's like God shook the heavens to bless Israel. He shook the heavens and what came out of the, the sky? Rain, water. How about manna? The bread from heaven? You know, they would wake up and it'd be on the ground. It's like he shook it. Like you would go out and shake a fruit tree when the fruit's ripe on it so that fruit would fall down, you could collect it and eat it. It's like what he did for them. I can only, can you, you ever, you ever just stop? Like you guys ever read Exodus and just stop and think, okay, what would that have looked like? You know? What would that have been like to have been at Sinai when God comes down and a cloud envelops this mountain and it shakes and everybody's trembling and in fear and fire and lightning and thunder, peals of thunder are up there. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? How awesome is God as he marches through the wilderness? And also notice he provided when they were ready to perish. Right? Verse 9. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. He provided when they were ready to perish, when all their resources were gone. Ask this. When does God many times show up? When all is seemingly lost, right? Think of, um, think of Israel coming out of Egypt. They're singing hallelujah. The Egyptians had given them all this gold and stuff like that, and they're just on their way, and then all of a sudden they come to the Red Sea. And they think, how are we going to get across this? They're following, following this pillar of fire, and then all of a sudden, what? You led us to the Red Sea, and then they turn around and look, and Pharaoh's army is behind them, ready to mow them down with their chariots and their spears, ready just to slaughter every single one of them. Imagine how their hearts sank 
Everything is lost. They don't have any resources in and of themselves to get across that, that sea or to turn around and fight Pharaoh's army. So what does God do? He divides, gives them a pillar of cloud, and, um, and the other one, the pillar of fire. And it separates the two camps all night long. And then God opens up the Red Sea, and they cross through it as on dry ground. God made the way. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I just really like saying their names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. All is lost for them, except they have hope in their God. Nebuchadnezzar sends them in and says, get that furnace seven times hotter. They go in thinking, okay, this is it. They go in, they're not burnt. They're not singed. They don't even come out smelling like smoke. And there's one like the son of man, like a son of the gods in there, Nebuchadnezzar says, with them. No doubt, Jesus Christ. How about Daniel in the lion's den? He's executed. He's sent to his execution to be eaten by lions in a pit. Can't tell me he was, wasn't thinking, this might hurt a little bit. And he gets down there and he's there all night. God sends an angel and shuts the mouths of the lions. He had no resources, no hope in and of himself, only in God. How about Peter? Peter gets put in jail after James is killed with the sword. After Stephen is stoned to death. He's put in prison waiting his execution. And what happens? An angel comes. Opens up the doors. They pass by all the guards. They can't even see him. They end up out in the, uh, the courtyard, and what does Peter say? Now I know it wasn't a dream or a vision. The Lord sent his angel. You know, and not only that, but all the believers were up praying. Praying and praying and praying that the Lord would spare Peter. And he goes to the door, and Rhoda the slave girl comes down. And he's knocking, and she hears his voice and runs up and says, it's Peter. And they say, oh, it must be his angel. It must be his spirit, his ghost. And they go down, sure enough. They, I mean, they had so much faith in their prayers that they didn't even believe that it was really Peter, that he was dead now. And his angel had come. How awesome is our God when we have no resources in and of ourselves. Our God can show up at any moment and do his works and shut every mouth. He provides when we're ready to perish. The disciples in the boat in the Sea of Galilee, rowing and rowing all night long, the wind and the waves are against them. They think they're going to die and drown, and Jesus comes walking on the water. Over and over again, we see that type of theme throughout the Bible. All is lost, and then God shows up, and he confirms his inheritance by his help to them. He confirms his inheritance by his hope for them. Look at verse 12. It says, Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. So when they would go out and fight another army, um, 
bring back the spoil or the women would come and defy the spoil or they're chasing the other army off, you know, getting all the stuff that they can. Like, hey, do you want that? I really need that at home. You know, kind of like you go to a garage sale. How much, much spoil? Verse 13, though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. That's a strange verse. It's kind of like, what do we do with that? The old King James translated it like this as well as the Geneva Bible. Those were the only two old ones that I looked at. It says, though ye have lying among the pots, ye shall be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. So the word translated as sheepfolds or pots it's only, that word in Hebrew is only seen one other time, and it's in uh, Ezekiel. I think it was chapter 34 or something. Maybe it was 43, you know, interposed numbers. Um, but there it's translated as hooks that they would hang the meat on for the sacrifices in the, in the temple. But um, it could be that this means like sections, like, a, uh, like not a sheep fold, but like a stall where you would put a an animal or something like that. The King James s- s- seems to give the impression that they think it's the Ark of the Covenant. That the Ark of the Covenant is looked at as something that's just common. It's like a pot or a pan that's just laying in your basement with, every, with all the other junk that's collecting dust. And then he says, but it's going to be honored. You will be like wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. But it's not like just some common pot. It could also be talking about just God's people. I would kind of tend to lean towards this interpretation more, that speaking of God's people, they're being held in prisons. They're being treated like animals, stuck in these stalls. But you will be like the dove her wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. The wings of a dove. That always gives a pleasant picture. You know, we think of the Holy Spirit when we think of the dove. You know, God's people are going to go through horrible things, but God is able to bring them out. The Geneva Bible note says, Though God suffer his church for a time to lie in black darkness, yet he will restore it and make it most shining and white. Though God suffer his church for a time to lie in black darkness, yet he will restore it and make it most shining and white. How awesome. Verse 14. When the army, when the Almighty scattered kings, and it was white as snow in Zalman. Here's another verse nobody really knows what to do. The popular opinion is that Zalman is a, is a hill. It actually means shady. Zalman means shady and had all these trees on top of it for shade. And um, as God, as the Almighty scatters the kings in it, he slaughters them, they die, they rot, and there's nothing there but their bleached bones on top of the mountain. And that's why it's like snow, white like snow. Other than that, I don't know what to do with it, so you guys go do your homework. 15. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountain of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now here's another one that at glance doesn't seem to make sense. Because God doesn't dwell on Bashan, right? You guys know where Bashan is? 
actually have a slide with a map up there. Asher, if you get that for me. Bashan is just um, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And um, there's a couple mountains there. One's the Golan Heights. The other one is Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Israel. Um, so you can see it up here where it says uh, Galantis up there. That whole area, it's actually a very large area. And you have at the very top under Iturea, you have Mount Hermon. It's hard to see on the, on the slide there. Now that's Mount Hermon. And, and just near there is the Golan Heights. So you guys are probably familiar with the Golan Heights if you watch the news and everything that's gone, out, gone on there in this last century. But um, that's the area of Bashan. God doesn't live or doesn't dwell on Mount Bashan or Mount Hermon or the Golan Heights. He dwells on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, right? And so why does it say a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan? And then why would it say, why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? Speaking of the mountains of Bashan, why do you fume with envy? Why are you so jealous? I would insist here that they're jealous of Mount Moriah, where God's temple is, where his holy dwelling is. So let me just kind of retranslate one word in here. So verse 15, a mountain of the gods is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountain of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. I believe the word Elohim here isn't speaking of the one true God. It's speaking of a bunch of little gods, little g-gods, false gods, demons. Bashan was a place that was thought to be ruled by demonic hosts. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find that a battle was there and a, there was a great king in Bashan. It was Og, king of, um, king of Bashan. So in Deuteronomy 3.11, we find out a little about, about this guy. It says, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was as an iron bedstead. And some translations say coffin there instead of a bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits its length and four cubits its width according to the standard cubit. That is, it's 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. This man was huge. Also in Psalm 22, it talks about the bulls of Bashan circling around the Messiah as he's being crucified. Why bulls of Bashan? The bulls of Bashan were thought to have spirits of bull demons in them. And that's why they got so large. They were the biggest around. The Bible talks about these bulls as if they were just immense, huge beasts. In the New Testament, Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And um, there they ask him, or Jesus asks them, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they answer, some say um, Elijah or John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what does Jesus tell him? He says, Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. They were in Caesarea Philippi in the area of Bashan. And there in Caesarea Philippi was what was known as the gate of Hades, the gate of hell. It was a temple made to the god Pan. And people would go and sacrifice there, and they would throw their sacrifices into this, this cave. And if blood came out of the river, then they knew that their sacrifice was, I can't remember if it was accepted or rejected. If the blood didn't come out, then I think it was accepted. But this is all in the area of Bashan, a demonic, evil place where false gods are worshipped. Another account of this area is in Mark 5, 1 through 9. It says this, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Literally, he just fell down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. This is in the area of Bashan. An area riddled with demons. And Jesus goes there, and what's he do with those demons? He casts them out of the man into a herd of pigs that run violently down a steep cliff and drown themselves in the sea. So this mountain of many peaks, this mountain of Bashan, is jealous. This mountain of the gods is jealous because the one true God, the most glorious God, the high God, dwells in Moriah and the temple there. So that's why they fume with envy. Go ahead and look at verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Paul uses that. Go ahead and go to Ephesians 4, verse 8. So Galatians, then Ephesians. If you hit Philippians, you've gone too far. Colossians. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So Paul kind of switches it around a little bit there. Instead of received gifts from men, it's he gave gifts to men. I would almost think God receives them first. Because what does he receive from men? He receives their souls, their lives. And then what does he give people? He gives those men. You know, who did God give you? 
to show you the way, to tell you about the Lord. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was an evangelist, maybe it was a good friend. He gave gifts to men because he has received gifts from men. He received their lives. Verse 9 explains it. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking of the ascension of Jesus Christ, that he died, he was buried, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what has he given us? He's given us his spirit. He's chosen people to teach us, to help us to himself. So Jesus had the victory over sin and death, and he ascended as the victorious king. Verse 19. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord be long escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies." So it speaks of God's salvation, and then it speaks of his judgment on his enemies. The one who has a hairy scalp. The one who still goes on in his trespasses, who won't repent. And he says, I will bring back from Bashan, and I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. There's another interesting verse. Who's he going to bring back from Bashan? Probably his enemies. It's, it's like he's going there, he's going to take his enemies, he's going to bring them back so that his people can crush them under their feet. You know, and from the depths of the sea, the only way I can think of that is the Red Sea. As God defeated the armies of Pharaoh, and as God defeated the armies of Bashan, the two greatest battles that Israel probably had, two greatest victories that they had, over Egypt, the greatest nation in the world, and over Bashan, this huge nation that guarded the way to the promised land. And God shows his victory over them. In Romans 16.20, it says that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So he's going to bring those enemies back. He's, they're going to, so that his people can crush them under their feet. And it says in blood. It's going to be violent. And what about Satan. One of these days, the God of peace will crush Satan under whose feet? Under our feet. Shortly. Amazing. Now here comes the victory procession. So God has had victory over all his enemies. He's had victory over sin and death. Jesus Christ ascended on high. And here's the procession. Verse 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. 
The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Perhaps speaking of all Israel, these quadrants of the land. And Benjamin's the smallest, the youngest of Jacob. So that's probably why it calls, little, calls him little Benjamin. Verse 28, your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Isn't that an awesome prayer? Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. How you have saved us, how you have given us of your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us in that. Strengthen us in one another. Strengthen us in your word. Strengthen us in your spirit. Strengthen us in our love that you've given us. Strengthen us in our knowledge of you. And then it says, verse 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds. Probably speaking of Egypt. The beast of the reeds, the crocodile and the reeds in the Nile. The herd of bulls with the calves of the people. The herd of the bulls with the calves of the people. Many Canaanite religions had bull gods. Baal was a bull god. Molech was a bull god. Chemosh was a bull god. So many of them were bull gods and represented the strength of their god, their people. And it says, So rebuke the beast of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the people who delight in war. And look at verse 31. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Speaking of, I believe, the millennial reign of Christ when he returns and comes back. And all these nations will bring them his due. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which are of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. Lord, that is an awesome psalm. You are victorious over all things, Lord. You have been victorious over us. You have brought us out to yourself. Lord, you are the one who gives us strength to stand in the evil day. Lord, please help us. Help us to have a heart after your heart. Help us not to be forgetful of those who are in need. Help us not to be forgetful of one another. Pray for each other. And help us not to be forgetful that you win, Lord. You are the God of victory. It says that you always lead us in triumph in Christ. Always. Always, in every way. Lord, you can never lose. So rise up, O God. Be our help. Save many in these last days. In your name, amen. All right, so we have communion. Let's go ahead and um, get it, and we'll take it together.